Hi there, and welcome to the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast with me, Joe O'Connor. The show where one special guest talks all things travel, the trips that have shaped their lives, what travel really means to them, and indeed what it might look like in the future. My guest for this episode has been my go-to guy on travel for a long time, someone who really has their finger on the pulse when it comes to the latest destinations and how best to get there. He's also had an influence on my own travel writing, having once given me feedback on my first ever travel article. In late May, at a time when travel abroad was still restricted, I caught up with Irish independent travel editor, Polo Canila. I still find when I land into a new destination and I get my room sorted for the night, go for a walk to get my bearings, I still have that electricity, it fizzles, I feel like my eyes are open wider, that I'm taking deeper breaths, that I'm more vigilant, more observant, I'm more open to the smells, the sights, the accents. When we chatted, Paul was busy predicting the future of travel for many media outlets, as well as starting his own novel initiative aimed at encouraging people to share their post-pandemic travel dreams. I was aware that we couldn't actively promote travel, but I wanted to keep travel front of mind for the future, to keep the jobs that are dependent on tourism in our thinking, and to create escape and a bit of dreaming and a bit of inspiration because that's okay. For this episode, Paul spoke with me about discovering his passion for travel in Moscow, experiencing the perfect travel moment in Norway, and rediscovering the beauty of his own backyard. I'm first and foremost a a proud Irishman. I love this island. I would say easily two-thirds of all the travel I do is here. Watching the extent to which our our food, walks, attractions, hotels and, and country houses have developed over the last 10 or 20 years has just been super exciting to be there to report on and and bear witness all that and much more on this episode of the itchy feet travel podcast i hope you enjoy So, Paul, thanks a million for joining us on the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast today. How are things? Oh, things are pretty good. I haven't been doing that much travelling in the last couple of weeks or months, obviously. I literally have the same tank of petrol in my car that I had on Paddy's Day, and I have explored every last inch of the 2K around me here in Greystones County Wicklow. So look, there's been ups, there's been downs, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but we're healthy. Sure, of course. Uh, and I was only thinking that as a travel editor, you've probably probably I'm guessing never been busier, but yet you can't travel right now. Would I be right? Yeah, that's it's an interesting um kind of curve that this story has taken from my point of view. When this all kicked off, uh, one of the first things that happened in terms of our travel coverage was the destination 
features went off a cliff. It suddenly became almost iffy or insensitive to talk about travel when, if you remember, hotspots were popping up all over the place. Italy was particularly badly affected at the beginning. No one knew where COVID-19 was going to strike next. And the idea of talking about holidays in places or encouraging people to go to places where we were watching these kind of tragedies unfold just made it really difficult to cover, particularly with something like a weekend magazine where we need to produce travel content uh, a couple of weeks ahead. So as, as the first couple of weeks unfolded, we went into lockdown around the week of Paddy's Day. The destination coverage started to taper off and I felt at that point that I might be entering into a couple of months of a sort of quiet time where it was travel coverage had to be you had to keep a lid on it you had to just step back but a few more weeks unfolded it became apparent that this was a pandemic that everybody was going to be dealing with it and suddenly I was sitting on probably the biggest news story that travel and tourism has faced in certainly in my lifetime and we've been through 9-11 and foot and mouth and financial crises and volcanic ash um, disruption but this really over the course of the last two months has bedded in as a game and life-changing story for the industry and we have been there to cover it and it's been everything from the tourism businesses here in Ireland that have suddenly had to shut down and are unable uh, to be certain about how and when they can reopen through to what is flying going to look like in the future, what are package holidays going to look like in the future. Um, so just, I was only mentioning it to a fellow writer the other day, I could be writing stories um, 24-7 at the moment. So the challenge is what not to write as much as what to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine a very strange time. But look, we'll get to the whole COVID thing and what travel might look like in the future a little later on. But but having you here today is really just to chat about your own travel experiences. Is there an early travel memory that really grabbed you and said, look, this is something I want to do. I want to go see the world. Yeah, I, I, I went, like many Irish people growing up, we went on holidays a mix of, of trips around the country. I have very clear memories of, of, of time spent on the Dingle Peninsula, for example, on holidays or on the coast in Wexford. Um, and we had the occasional overseas trip as well, camping holidays to France, which was a rite of passage for many Irish families. But it wasn't until I was in college that I kind of, I went on a trip where travel really got its teeth into me. And what it was, was Russia. I'd never been, had a particular intrigue about Russia. I'd studied history in school, okay. I was aware that this was a really fascinating but complicated country and a couple of cousins of mine were working there uh, for a year or two and they had an apartment in one of these huge uh, what they call them the white houses around the city they're large Soviet era but almost regal kind of apartment blocks and they had a spare room and they said come and visit us so I said okay I'll give this a go I was very young it was I'm old enough now for this to have been at a time when there was no internet and before I went I had to get US dollars and um, 
the cousin I was going to visit when I arrived said, have you ever had a million of anything? And he handled me, he handed me a fistful of rubles. And the, the plane over was an Aeroflot flight. I remember the seats behind me. The crew had their luggage popped on the seat, held in place with those stretchy bicycle cables with the hooks on the end. But down the middle was, a, you know, a bumpy in places, people smoking on the plane. It was that kind of vintage. Smoking, really? Wow. Yes, back then, when, before they ruled out smoking on flights, you could smoke anywhere okay. and then it was confined to the last three rows and eventually thank god it was ruled out it wasn't just aeroflot obviously um but then i i landed and it quickly became apparent that this was a whole other world uh, it's just a three to four hour flight away but uh, moscow is was at the time just kind of still almost felt like going behind a communist curtain Mm-hmm. I went on to the, the metro, which are these epic, huge um, Soviet-style uh, stations bedecked with marble and, and propaganda. And I remember walking one way and all of the commuters coming the other way with their fur hats on and the, the, the icy breath coming out of their mouths. And I couldn't read any of the signs in the station because it was all in the Cyrillic alphabet. But I eventually found my way to Red Square and I surfaced and found in front of me the multicoloured domes of uh, almost onion-shaped domes of St. Basil's. And I just thought, wow, the combination of the absolute foreignness of the experience, the adventure from getting from A to B, the way it challenged me, the fact that my, my senses were all on high alert trying to digest this that was when I realised that there was a lot more to travel than the beaches and and the, the family holidays of my youth. Wow. Yeah, sounds like a great trip at, at such a young age. And as you say, like it, it is so close, uh, being in Europe, but yet there is that real cultural shock element to Russia, isn't there? Yeah, and that I haven't been back in, in quite some time. Um, but you don't have to go too far for that. And that's... In in my lifetime as well, I've watched the uh, you know the whole no frills revolution and the growth of budget airlines. When I was taking my first flights, it cost hundreds to get to London. The flights were few and far between. Um, many of your listeners will remember that, I'm sure. But um, what what these what the budget airlines and Ryanair in particular have done is is blown Europe wide open to travellers in the last uh, twenty years or even 30 years at this stage but they've also brought places like North Africa like Morocco like uh, Tunisia uh, and like Russia uh, places that are within reach of a three four four and a half hour flight literally they would have been once in a lifetime trips a generation ago but they um, they certainly became more accessible so you can look at that as an amazing thing or you can look at it as a complicated thing uh, mm-hmm. also. And then, is there anything you'd say excites you most about travel, Paul? And maybe it's some of the, the you know things you just described, uh, walking out and, and seeing this kind of completely different landscape. Um, is there something in particular, or is it a mix of things that really excites you about travel? It, it all boils down to how it makes me feel when I'm out there on the road, in the field, taking to a plane, exploring a new place. There's a lot of um, monotony, tedium, uh, 
uh, fatigue involved with travel misconnections um you know dealing with traffic dealing with weights um consumer rights trying to get your hotel organized whatever it may be and that gets exhausting um but i still find when i land into a new destination and i get my room sorted for the night and i get my camera around my neck and my water bottle out and i go for a walk to get my bearings I still have that kind of electricity fizzles. Um, I feel like my eyes are open wider, that I'm taking deeper breaths, that I'm more vigilant, more observant. I'm more open to the smells, the sights, the accents around me. Whether that's, you know, you might walk down a street in the old town of Sorrento and you might notice it's so yellow and that's because the sun is bouncing off all the lemons and the limoncello signs that are hanging out of these market stalls and then you get a whiff of chocolate from a a, a chocolateria or you see that the pizza ovens are starting to fire up and you hear the people speaking Italian in a southern dialect around that and that that just puts you into a place it lifts you out of your normal state of being and puts you in this electric receptive curious gung-ho kind of position that I just love and it doesn't happen with every trip and I've been on lots (laughs) of crappy trips that I prefer to forget and um, I don't feel it when I'm in an airport and I'm knackered and I don't feel it when I'm jet lagged and I don't feel it when I'm chasing travel insurance companies to to, you know reclaim uh, disruption expenses or whatever it may be but when it clicks it's like an Mm -hmm. absolute shot in the arm and it's still live for me brilliant great way of describing it there and it it really transports you to another place but it sounds like you certainly still get that buzz anyway you haven't run out of destinations not at all uh i i I mean we covering travel for an irish audience which i do as travel editor of the irish independent um we obviously need to focus on places that people actually go irish people tend to love spain they love Portugal, they love France. Uh, to to they, We go in slightly lesser numbers to places like Italy, to Croatia. Um, but we, we have a very deep grow for those places. And um, that's, between that, the UK and the US, that's the vast majority of Irish travel accounted for. But we also want to include armchair destinations, once-in-a-lifetime trips, um as well so our challenge I suppose in putting out travel content to engage people and excite them about travel is to get the mix right between those things so between those and between the exotic places there's always somewhere new to go you touched on some of the you know less fun elements of travel there that you know hanging around airports and that type of thing is there a place you you would say you would never return to whether it's the experience you had or the place itself is there somewhere at the other end of the scale where you say I've done it and I won't be going back yeah I have a few places like that and for different reasons I have had um, for an example of a kind of a global wonder of the world that just didn't um, get me going to the extent that other people was um, Uluru in Australia or Ayers Rock 
I get that it has a fascinating heritage, a deep meaning to the indigenous uh, community. I get that it looks beautiful in sunrise and sunset, and it does. But I, when I got there, it was only when I arrived, really, I discovered how strangely packaged it is and you stay at resorts around the place and you're you are wake up before sunset and you take a bus and you stand in a certain place and you watch the sun hit the rock and as the day comes up the heat rises with it too and it's absolutely excruciatingly hot and there's loads of flies around the place that really pester and bother you and um it felt like after the morning that this was okay seen it you know that climbing it obviously is very controversial and and no longer possible or advised when i was Mm -hmm. there it was kind of a by choice and i chose not to because that was what the indigenous um people um preferred but it just felt like taking a flight from perth or sydney or melbourne or whatever it was to the red center to do this i just it is it's a it's a exact example of like what you said there been there done that and that doesn't that's not a feeling that i was i was glad to have seen the sunset and the sunrise and all that but um uh, i just didn't love it i, I but i've also had um tri- trips that are nightmarish for different reasons um like i say i had a I had an amazing trip to Hawaii at one stage recently, um, but the journey home took nearly 72 hours um, between um, flight diversions due to weather disruption, misconnections, um, uh, trying to find places to stay, being in the same set of clothes the whole time, uh, queuing in disastrous airport queues just trying to find out what was happening next or where my bag was and then entering into the whole travel insurance um, saga when I got home there's that side of it although I don't expect any sympathy uh, because I had been to Hawaii of course and I I (laughs) realise that is a privilege (laughs) to be able to say that but that is the downside of modern travel is that when it goes belly up it just can be you you get you can get stuck in these hellish uh, twilight zones uh, where you're monitoring mm-hmm. social media and listening around you for any sign of an announcement as to when your flight might move or or something may happen and it just doesn't come um sure so uh, look there's lots of places like that but i have i've been in it long enough at this stage to realize that i'm very privileged i work really really hard at what i do and i have earned um you know i've earned every word that i've written i feel but i'm Mm -hmm. I'm really Mm -hmm. conscious that it's a privilege to be able to travel like this and to be able to talk about exotic exotic places too and I'm really sure. conscious that I need to keep the love and the enthusiasm for it going. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sorry, uh, you're probably not asked that question too much in terms of uh, having to draw on those kind of bad experiences. But uh, yeah, it's always interesting to know. And, and I know what you're saying about the Uluru experience. And, and there are a lot of kind of destinations out there that they're, they've become so popular um, that you know you're almost being told the exact position to get your photo in or to see the sunset and at what time and that it, it really takes away from the experience yeah we had the the one of the key words in travel before um the the pandemic disrupted everything was over tourism um we we had over the past number of years seen a number of pinch points emerge in europe they were places like barcelona um venice Dubrovnik, Santorini, 
even Iceland to a slightly diff- different extent had all reached this kind of crunch scenario where they had put an awful lot of economic eggs in the basket of a certain kind of tourism that was based on volume and suddenly local communities were feeling like enough was enough particularly at the peak times that there was issues of sustainability that people just weren't enjoying themselves locals were getting crotchety they weren't able to enjoy their own communities um the the home sharing economy was was meant that how the price of houses and apartments were rising for locals who who were looking at having to move out of neighborhoods and so on now that so that sense of mass tourism super popular um sites the mona lisa comes to mind for example or the sagrada familia in barcelona um becoming less enjoyable as experiences simply because you queued for hours and then you you fought with millions of tourists to try and get a picture and then you were on your way in a minute or two that's like the the antithesis of what travel means to a lot of people the kind of meaningful cultural exploration where you learn about other places and you learn about yourself you learn how different we are but you learn that we're all the same underneath it so that that was really coming to a boiling point and all of a sudden, the rug was pulled out from it in February and March. And you saw those satellite images of how, you know, air traffic and, and air pollution has, has has died down in the last couple of months. And it is one of the positives, I suppose. There's been great economic disaster going with this in tourism. But we've all had a, an opportunity to look at how we travel at what the toll it takes on the environment and to have a think about how sustainably we can pick up the pieces when it's safe to do that again. So how we do that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's been some you know, amazing images coming out of the likes of Venice with empty streets you know, like we've never seen. So yeah, yeah it's, de- it's definitely one element of this whole pandemic that might bring something positive. But you, you mentioned Iceland there and, and a place I'd been to um, not too long ago is the Faroe Islands. And I remember when we were going home at the airport, we were stopped by their tourism agency and they were you know, asking questions of people who had visited. And they said, you know, one of their strategies in tourism is to make sure um, what happened to Iceland doesn't happen to them. They're, they're really fearful of becoming this popular tourist destination and are completely overwhelmed by visitors. Now, that probably won't happen now, given what's happened with the pandemic. But mm-hmm. but there is a, yeah, a, a kind of an acknowledgement that, you know, a lot of these places have become overpopulated with tourists so it will be interesting to see how the likes of somewhere like that Faroe Islands will manage it but um, Paul I wonder could I draw you on your favourite travel destination of all time could you choose one or is there lows in there Uh, no I can't choose one but I do um, the the, the joke in in the the industry of course as you always say what's your favourite travel destination oh my next one and now we have no idea where we could go next. We've no idea where it's going to open up, um, of course. But I do, uh, as as I've travelled, I do have places that I have returned to and I do have places that have lasted longer in the memory than other places. I'm first and foremost 
a, a proud Irishman. I love this island. I would say, you know, easily two thirds of all the travel I do is here. And I have just w- watching the the extent to which our 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 food, our uh, walks, our attractions, our our hotels and and country houses, um, have developed over the last ten or twenty years has just been uh, super exciting to be there to report on and, and bear witness to. Um, when I started writing about travel, Irish food was a a joke and you still go overseas and hear people talk about bacon and potatoes and beer <laughs> but when you see the 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 the, 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 the sophistication um of what and the combination of sophisticated high-end dining we had 18 michelin star restaurants in january and i hope as many of them as possible can open again but with the with the boom in casual dining that we've had over the last five to ten years you think about the the we rediscovered baking pizza ovens cropping up all over the place amazing burgers using irish beef um great artisan irish farmhouse cheese plates the seafood for so long despite being on an island we seem to have an aversion to fish but we woke up to that and that was really reaching a peak point as well in 2019 2020 Fulch Ireland mm-hmm. had launched its first food tourism strategy and I really hope we can pick that up and move on with it so I get really enthusiastic about Ireland and I try and get back to everywhere I can in the country <laughs> in about a 48 uh, say a 24 month uh, period so I, I, I might get to you know, each county once a year and then try and circle back to a different place in that county the next time and so mm-hmm. on. So Ireland for sure. But then, I mean, the greatest city on earth is clearly New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my favourite foodie trip has been San Sebastian. I, I was just okay. um, walking around the old town, dropping into one Pinchos bar and having art jokes on, you know, stunningly fresh beautifully pickled artichokes on a piece of crispy uh, bruschetta bread and the next one having you know a tiny piece of octopus and then the, the next one having your shrimp or the the next speciality and washing them all down with a tiny perfectly portioned canya of local beer and I could have just waddled through that old town <laughs> for a week um, I, we love Spain and, and food obviously is one big reason of it I've I, I, landscapes come to mind Norway hideously expensive but once you take a, a, I, I took a sea kayaking trip down one of the fjords there not too long ago and it was one of those moments where I've told you moments where everything goes wrong but this was mm-hmm. a moment where everything went right and um, I was paddling down w- with a, a guide a, a fjord uh, that was you know just punching up out of the water on either side of us with these magnificent cliff faces with farmhouses teetering above on these precarious ridges we got out and we did a hike up to one and we came back and we paddled and then we were surrounded by this shoal of about 20 or 30 dolphins and we jumped out of the kayaks and just had a swim you know keeping a respectful distance but the animals were playing around us and it, it washed the sweat of the hike off and you're, you could hear your voices echoing around off the walls and 
I got out and just felt, you know, a moment of bliss before it was punctured by a 16 euro beer or whatever it was. I think it was actually <laughs> probably a 9 euro 90 beer, if I remember correctly. I know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you just painted a stunning scene there and just kind of, yeah, the, the beer <laughs> price just burst the bubble completely. But yeah, some amazing destinations there for sure. Is there maybe a hidden gem? And we spoke about these kind of places that, you know, are overpopulated with tourists but is there somewhere that you've been you kind of questioned why isn't everyone going here um yeah this goes this speaks to the conversation we had about over tourism and increasingly in the last four or five years i have been looking for hinterlands suburbs second cities um destinations beyond the kind of pressure points and the honeypots that people can be recommended to visit remember that people a lot of people reading and writing or sorry reading and looking for inspiration and in travel coverage are you might have a couple of holidays a year if you're lucky and you want to take the right decision and you're putting a lot of money into it and you may have your family with you so you're not going to necessarily take a punt on a really random destination that is difficult to get to couple of flights you're not sure if it'll work or not there's language issues what's the wi-fi set up so you have to balance all of that so um a lot of it would involve thinking about off season or thinking instead of going to say barcelona for instance why not take a trip to girona which is very close by or valencia which is a fascinating city um and uh, surprisingly few irish people have been there um so people gravitate city-wise in spain towards barcelona um and then madrid and madrid is actually often a surprising discovery for lots lot of visitors but step beyond that valencia granada malaga city itself we spoke about san sebastian so that's the way i've been trying to think about it um more and more as we go so yeah i i i did a, a another trip last year and it seems like um it seems like i don't know a decade ago at this stage because we're so confined now but i went to the dalmatian hinterland in croatia and my brief was to leave the coast and to drive inland and i based myself in a town called uh, sibenek and i drove in close to the the border and i the roads are really good in Croatia driving is quite easy but you only have to go um, I want to say 10k from the coast from Dubrovnik from all of the the sparkling resort and and beautiful water views that we're used to till you get to this really agricultural landscape national parks wide open country that you never knew was there and I went even a little bit further still just an hour or two's drive and suddenly was found myself in the remnants of the the war with you would still see abandoned buildings with with bullet holes in the concrete very few people around and it just it, that's what when it, it brought home to me that we the whole travel industry is kind of structured around or let's say holiday industry into funneling people into set destinations which have good air access good resort infrastructure you know companies work by 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 directing people to them but you mm-hmm. can 
venture off track, venture off season, push yourself just a little bit. It doesn't you don't have to go totally outside of your comfort zone and it, you open up all of these rich kind of rewards and you mm-hmm. feel your confidence grow and you might have to work a little bit harder for them, but the memories do stick and they are all the more special. Brilliant. And and that's why I find car rental is, you know, opens those doors to you, you know. And you're just talking about Croatia. I was in Slovenia last year, another incredibly rich country in terms of landscape and yeah just the outdoors really but but i find that you know these places yeah you you might fly into dubrovnik or split or wherever but once you rent that car it just opens up so many opportunities to see new places yeah yeah interesting about that and i saw slovenia we were only talking about earlier as uh, you know should we cover this in the months ahead because it's been relatively uh, it hasn't been as badly affected by COVID-19 as other countries and and there's a really interesting culinary scene there you know the chef Anna Rose I'm sure you might, you will have seen her oh, on, yeah. on Netflix um, and there's a new this is the first year of a Michelin guide to Slovenia there's some Irish winemakers working there there's wide open spaces there aren't the crowds so this the the pandemic is going to alter how we think about travel as we go forward so so we'll be looking at places like that in a, in a sense it's a, an opportunity for places like that to suddenly grab the attention yeah totally agree totally agree and, and with that we flew into venice so it's about not being completely restricted or, or just focused on you know wherever ryanair flies into for instance just you know thinking about you know what city can i uh, take a train to or, or or drive to once you know I land in in, in certain destinations. So it's it's. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's going to make people think outside the box a bit more in terms of choosing destinations. But I suppose, Paul, if we, if you don't mind, just going back to what we uh, spoke about at the start, and that's this whole pandemic, and you know, trying to figure out what the future of travel looks like. Um, what are your thoughts? I know. You know, it's a wide open question, but it is, yeah. And you, we would put in all of our COVID caveats up at the top that that nobody knows the answer to this question. It's all speculation at this stage. It all depends on public health. Um, it all depends on the easing of travel restrictions and quarantines. Um, so in order to go anywhere, we have to be allowed to leave Ireland making non-essential journeys, which we're currently not allowed to. And we have to be able to enter other places without undergoing a two week quarantine, which we're currently not able to. But sometime travel is going to resume and it's going to start picking up again. And you can look at this in different time frames. The earliest that overseas travel is going to kick off in Europe. It looks like being sort of easing into late June and July. And we've heard Reiner say they aspire to get um, about 40% of their schedules back up and running in July. There's been um, Lufthansa have tentatively started adding routes again, including from Dublin. Finnair today announced that they would be starting to get routes back up and running, including from Dublin soon. So airlines are really pushing to get this going. The EU has said that it would like to see tourism resume soon because one in 10, I think it is, jobs on the continent are dependent on tourism. And there's real potential for long lasting economic carnage here if things can't get back up and running um, in a sustainable way soon. 
So there's a huge pressure to get things going. And on the other side of that is the public health issue that we don't want to just ruin everything by getting out of the traps too soon. There are countries that are looking more bullish than others. Greece is starting to open its hotels, resorts, restaurants from the beginning of June. said that it could possibly welcome overseas visitors from July. Now, presumably, that would start with land access and then it may go with um, flights from countries that are lesser affected than others. Um, We've heard Portugal say it's going to open its beaches in June. It's going to open most of its hotels and water parks by July. The Algarve, believe it or not, has had less than 400 cases and that's a huge holiday destination. So what they're waiting on is the go-ahead from airports and the go-ahead on in, in terms of quarantine. Um, there's other destinations like Cyprus, like Croatia, uh, like Slovenia, which we mentioned, and like the Canary Islands, which are probably Ireland's greatest holiday hope at the moment. They're really incentivized to get this sorted because they depend so much on tourism for, you know, literally the livelihood of each each household on the island depends on it. They have a low caseload, about 2,500 cases across the whole archipelago. So you could see them getting up and running. You could see kind of winter sun happening from Ireland this year. Again, all going well. So there are positives to take. You could choose to look at this optimistically. But Irish people are not leaving in the next couple of months, that's for sure. And when we do take to the road again... It's going to be uh, into a brave new world where we wear face masks on public transport and in airports where we may have to do temperature checks. We may have to do either antibody or PCR tests. We may have to carry digital uh, health or immunity passports. We are going to have to get used to distancing, whether that's in the airport queue, whether it's getting our bags, whether it's having... um, set dining times or appointments to to sit by the pool and use the pool whether it's uh, certain spaces you have to book on a beach um, we're going to have to get used to uh, a whole new kind of health protocol and I really think we will want that we'll want not just hand sanitizers everywhere but we'll want to be really reassured that, that, that facilities are being deep cleaned and we're being looked after and there's a plan in place if a small cluster Forms, So the trick, the great trick facing the tourism and hospitality industry here is to pull that off and still make it feel like a holiday. (laughs) Yeah, there's challenges ahead for sure and it's a whole new world. But look, some optimistic, you know, thoughts in there and and fingers crossed it won't be too long before we're we're back on the road, as you said. Uh, When we are, Paul, um, whether it's home or abroad, is there a... A destination that you're just mad to get to once the restrictions are lifted. You know, um, I I think I've there's been a bit of perspective in this for me in that I I don't have a, a driving desire to suddenly get on a plane and tick everywhere off. I just what I miss is just slow discovery, being in that zone I described to you earlier where my senses are heightened and. I really don't care if it's rural France or the last trip that I had cancelled when we went into lockdown was a simple walk on Curglow Beach down to Raven Point in County Wexford 
where there is um, a lovely 6k walking loop um, through a pine forest, loop back by the slobs along the beach and back to the car park. It's so simple. I had planned it out on Google Maps. I was going to do video on it. I was going to film it. going to do some nice copy on it. Just a simple Irish walk. And all of a sudden, that is as far away as the Seychelles in terms of the, you know, realistically being able to do it. So I just want, like everybody else, my family to be safe. I want people to get their jobs back. I want to be able to, to travel and eat out and, you know, pick those lemons up from the market in Sorrento or order a meal of fish in Dingle or go for a walk in Wexford and just to feel that fizzle again but to know that I'm safe um, and and I, I that's so I really don't have a solid answer to say I'd love to go mm. to the Seychelles or I'd yeah. love to get back I'd love to get to St. Petersburg and all that they'd all be great but um, the most important thing for me is that is that feeling mm-hmm. yeah and the way you describe so well that feeling of travel the thing that you love about travel I suppose it's about us getting back to that more so than a particular destination but look hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later Listen, Paul, that's been fascinating. Thanks a million for taking the time out to chat. One thing I want to ask you about before you go is the hashtag um, when we travel again, something you started online, which is brilliant. Could you tell us a bit about the thinking behind that and how it's gone? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I I, um, was trying to figure out what, what I could do in that period where we were watching the world fall apart around us. We were watching restaurants close. We were all seeing our local communities boarded up and those yellow COVID-19 signs going up everywhere. And I want. I was aware that we couldn't actively promote travel, but I wanted to keep travel front of mind for the future, to keep the jobs that are dependent on tourism in our in our thinking, and to create escape and a bit of dreaming and a bit of inspiration because that's okay. We don't have to be, you know cramming in the homeschooling and and flitting through all the coronavirus news coverage and worrying and and only dealing with serious stuff we can dream too and that's good for our mental health as well as for future trips so the idea I had was just every day at 8 o'clock I tweet a picture from my travels or a picture that that, um, readers or followers have shared with me and it could be from Ireland and it could be from overseas and it could be as simple as a cup of tea um, in a cafe to an, a stunning you know view of Manhattan from the the Staten Island ferry but the idea is just at eight every day I just pop it up there with the hashtag when we travel again get people thinking and, and dreaming and um, out of the out of the kind of spiral you can find sometimes find yourself in at the moment brilliant well look that's great i've been keeping an eye on it there's been some fantastic uh posts up there if people want to check your your twitter feed L- listen thanks again uh, it's been fantastic to chat paul and look as we said fingers crossed um it won't be too long before we're, we're traveling again and we're reading about the new destinations that you've visited thanks a million thank you too joe and thanks for having me i really enjoyed it
This episode of the Itchy Feet Travel Podcast was produced and presented by me, Joe O'Connor. Editing and music by Paul Lochran. Thanks again to my guest, Paolo Canila, for joining me. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out Paul's When We Travel Again posts on Twitter. And if you want to stay up to date on all things travel, I suggest you sign up to his Travel Insider newsletter with the Irish Independent. Stay tuned for more great guests in the weeks ahead. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the Iggy Feet Travel Podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, safe travels and chat soon.